Hey everyone, on this week's episode, we introduce ourselves and our show. We talk about the state of Jeopardy, game show hosts, and the Price is Right experience. Hello, welcome to This Week in Game Shows. I am two-time game show loser J.D. Lape, and with me is aspiring game show contestant Adrian Perez. Adrian, how are we doing today? Fantastic, man. Hi, everybody. Awesome. Um, well, welcome to everybody who has followed us over from our YouTube channel. Uh, we had a YouTube channel start up back in the fall. Uh, took a little bit of a hiatus around the holidays, and we're back and ready to go at it here in the new year. Uh, in a new format here as podcasters instead of a YouTube channel. So we hope you guys will enjoy the new format and have it be easier for you to follow us uh, from week to week from now on. And that's what we hope to do. Come with you uh, every week with a new show. We're going to talk about recaps. We're going to talk about our thoughts on the state of game shows. We're going to talk about strategies. Uh, you name it, we'll talk about it. Uh, there two different categories we like to think we'll talk about. We have the quote-unquote traditional game shows where you're going to have Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, Millionaire, Price is Right, um, even some of the primetime stuff like The Wall or Child Support, things like that. Um, and then you're going to have the reality competitions. We have uh, currently in season, you have MTV's The Challenge. You have The Amazing Race, uh, The Bachelor coming up as Survivor, Big Brother, things of that nature. Um, Go back so real quick, sorry. Um, just for you guys who don't know, Child Support is a, a brand new game that's only aired once or twice in primetime TV, um, hosted by Ricky Gervais. Actually hosted by, well, Ricky Gervais is in it, it's actually hosted um, by Ben Savage. Fred Savage. Shit. <laughs> it's okay, they look alike, it's fine. <laughs> Wonder Years, Boy Meets World, same thing. But yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a brand new game show, not something I refrain from opening my mail for. <laughs> Oh, well, with that being said, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, I know for us, one of our favorite shows, or if not the favorite show for both of us, is Jeopardy. And we love it so much, and if we seem opinionated, it's because we're so passionate about game shows, and especially Jeopardy. Um, Jeopardy, yeah, Jeopardy is the ultimate old-school traditional game show where it's about pure intellectual wit and questions and answers. Um, there's kind of not a lot of personality involved, not a lot of hype or uh, excitement. It's just literally a competition of wits between three contestants um, and Alex Trebek hosting and or giving his comments or thoughts on the lack of information that the guests, uh, the contestants know at a certain point. Um, but Jeopardy is something, you know, to me, where it's my favorite 30 minute <laughs> segment of the day. It's something I look forward to all the time, um, both for entertainment value and as kind of like an intellectual challenge as game show and trivia buffs. Um, you always want to challenge yourself and play either with or against the contestants that are coming up. And uh, Jeopardy gives you that very quick, no-nonsense um, approach to question and answers. I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah, Adrian, you mentioned that you're, it's your favorite 30 minutes of the day. And uh, I'd have to say I'm right there with you. Uh, but we've talked about this off-air and how you feel like you have to watch it live or else, you know, it, it doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, you know, some people do it with sports, sporting events. I'm kind of the same with Jeopardy. I hate having to go back and watch it or rewind it because I feel like I'm cheating or I'm cheating myself as opposed to watching it live and being in the moment and knowing the answers. Um, I, I'm such a buff uh, and, you know, I'm such a, a Jeopardy fanatic that I will have people either Snapchat me or tweet at me 
or text me as Jeopardy's airing because they're either watching it or knowing it's a question I like or that they're watching it. So I feel like if I'm not watching it live or if I am not able to answer in real time or at the moment, that I'm cheating because I'm going back and rewinding it and going back and forth. And I don't know. It's, it's kind of a weird little uh, thing that I have about it, but I've got to watch it live. And I, don't get, I don't get to it all the time. And there are times when I do go back from the DVR and watch what I haven't caught up on. Um, but I try to make it a point to be there at 7 o'clock here on the uh, West Coast when they show it. Sometimes it's 7.30 for you, depending on where you're at. But um, that 30 minutes is something I kind of look forward to every day. Um, that's how sad my life is right now, apparently. So. <laughs> well, I'll try to spin this into a positive light. But it makes it makes sense why you want to watch it live, especially with people tweeting you. And if you want to follow along on social media, I know that there is a big following uh, with the hashtag Jeopardy. I know there are a lot of Twitter accounts and a lot of... Uh, Actually, yes, a lot of Twitter accounts devoted to Jeopardy and a lot of people that do watch it live, as you say, do tweet about it, live tweet the shows as well, along with some of the contestants, both former and the ones that are playing during the half hour you're watching it. And so it, it does pay off to watch it live. Uh, there's no doubt about that, uh, just because of the community over 34 seasons that Jeopardy has had. Uh, for me, I could go either way. Honestly, I'd almost prefer to watch it on the DVR towards the end of the week because uh, just with life and work and social lives and everything else, I've gotten to a point where I will almost always be or almost always have uh, two, three, four episodes in the bank on the DVR. And it's actually kind of nice because now I get to watch Jeopardy for a nice, you know, hour and a half block, you know, skipping through the commercials and whatnot if I have four, three, four episodes. Um, whereas if I watch it live, number one, the commercials, which don't bug me as much, but then at the end of the day, it's like, I only got half an hour of Jeopardy right now. And so when you get used to watching it on the DVR, and I've been watching Jeopardy live the last uh, few nights, it's, uh, it's a different, I wouldn't say, I don't know if mindset is the right word, but, um, it, it's a diff it's different. It's definitely a different feeling as opposed to being able to, not only watch a fast-paced show for hour, hour and a half at a time, but now you've got commercial breaks and everything else, and you're basically watching only 18 to 20 minutes of Jeopardy. Yeah, you know, and again, each, each, each person is what what they are and how they come and watch it. I guess what right. we're saying is um, I'm that guy that comes home every day after a long day of work and just pounds a beer around when he gets home and he's good, and JD <laughs> is the one that comes home early on a Friday and is drunk before 6 o'clock, so... You know, you enjoy your vice or whatever it is, <laughs> your own way, and whether it's one one a day or uh, all-out warfare on the weekend, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Let's not equate our Jeopardy watch times to our alcohol consumption here, Adrian, but <laughs> not all things are equal. Yeah, if we did, I'd be a lot smarter than, uh, than I probably <laughs> am today. So. Uh, but with that being said, with our love of Jeopardy, there have been things going on here in Season 34, and it's happening a lot more lately as the calendar is turned over, um, we're noticing more and more that we're ending rounds with clues on the board. And not just the Jeopardy round, which I feel like in seasons past, if there uh, was an episode with one round in which there were clues left on the board, it's more than likely the Jeopardy round. But this season, uh, we're either getting... We've got some episodes where both rounds have ended early with clues on the board and sometimes and we're getting a lot more double jeopardy rounds with clues left on the board or at least 
with the with the eye test, I feel like it's happening a lot more often this season than in seasons past. I know that uh, Adrian, you and I, we've talked off air. We have our theories about this. Uh, what's one of them that you think as to the reason why we're seeing this more prevalent? I would say in season thirty-four this year than we have necessarily in seasons past. Uh, one one that I touch on, you know, I think with Alex kind of going back and forth, the, 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 the break you return from, the very first break you return from, where Alex kind of gets a little personal with the guests and talks to the guests. You know, they've already been introduced in the beginning. You know, they tell them who they are, what their name is, what they do. Um, but there's almost like, it, it's almost like a banter or a quick uh, discussion exchange where it's supposed to be almost like a quick just little further intro into who you are where Alex almost always comes back with a second question or he's got a remark for every single person or everything that, you know, that person answers to her. Oh, you know, we hear that you've traveled to Rome. And the ladies, you know, the contestants, oh, yeah, I was fantastic. My husband and I went last year for a few days. And Alex comes back with something, whether it's, you know, satirical or not. Like, oh, well, fantastic. Well, I was there for a month and the Pope and I are best friends. So good for you. You know, and it's... Uh, but he's always got something he's got to come back on. Well, he is or something. Enough. Yeah, and he is. And I'm sure he's, you know, well off enough yeah. to do it. Um, but, you I'll know... talk about him and the Pope, sorry. Yeah, it's almost to where he uh, has has to almost have a second... The last word. Where it can't just be, all right, fantastic. And now we have... It's almost to where it's got to be a quick back and forth and he has to say something else. And that kind of... That segment, as it is, I think, is a little longer than it needs to be, whether it's per, you know relevant or not. He makes it even longer, and that's like an extra ten to fifteen seconds. Where again, we're seeing where that two or three questions, and of course, depending on how the game's played and how the board's selected, it's usually the bigger money that's sitting at the bottom. It's usually a category that's either more difficult or they haven't got to yet, and it's the two or two bottom categories or one bottom in each category, and that's big money being left on the board. Not just big money, but again, questions that we want answers to as as people watching at home and are unanswered. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point, Adrian. Um, of course, we're not trying to throw shade on the contestants or anything like that. We appreciate the interview portion because it does make the, the contestants a little more human uh, just because the game is so fast-paced and there's so much to get through that there's only a, a short, a very short amount of time that we're able to can make a connection with the contestants. But at the end of the day, we both feel, I think, that that's not necessarily the meat and potatoes of Jeopardy. Like this is a, this is a very fast-paced game. the 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 game is about the clues, and I mean, the all game shows are are essentially about the game. However, certain game shows lend themselves to higher energy, more personality contestants, and I feel like Jeopardy is probably at the bottom of that totem pole, and so. Um, not to eliminate that completely, which is not what you had said, but just we need it. I think part of it is we can tighten that up and Alex doesn't need follow-up questions because there are times, to your point, I feel like there are stories in which a contestant can wrap it up in, in the next 10 seconds, but Alex sometimes will cut them off and ask some follow-up question that will elongate the interview portion for you know that much longer when in reality I feel like it would probably go a little more smoothly if you just let the contestants finish their thought. Now understand sometimes now as the host he's probably trying to move things along and he's trying to avoid things like rambling, which is something that you know we might end up doing <laughs> here in our podcast. But um, on the show I understand it, but sometimes it could be a detriment where 
uh, as I mentioned, the contestant can be almost done with a, a thought or their sentence or their story or whatever, and Alex will come back with this question or he'll talk about his personal experiences that you know may or may not be adjacent <laughs> to their story and it's just let's get keep this moving alex you're you're kind of bogging us down now in this portion of the show right and again contestants you know you've been a contestant on that show as well and we've on different shows um talked to you before but you're nervous as it is and when you get that second question thrown at you you're probably more baffled than you were in the first one and now you've created an even more elongated experience when now you're either struggling to come up with an answer or stuttering or starting to ramble again and then of course of course the back and forth goes back Again, and now you're just wasting more time. Right, because these these uh, the interview portion, these stories or questions or whatever, or at least the initial questions, are not uh, surprises to the contestant because we had to come up with two or three different talking points, and Alex gets to decide which one he wants to talk about. So you kind of have an idea going into like you have you know that you may talk about one or two of these things, but as you said, um, be that as it may, if Alex comes back with the follow up question you can get thrown for a loop because either you're focused on the game or as you said, you could be nervous enough as it is. You're on you're on the big stage under the bright lights. You have Alex Trebek two feet in front of you asking you these questions. Um, yeah, it, it, it's just, there are ways to be able to cut that down a little bit and not to the, not necessarily to the detriment of the contestants, but to create a more cohesive interview portion and therefore create a more co cohesive half hour of programming for everyone involved. Yeah. Right. There's nothing on the contestants, obviously, um, or personal attack on Alex Trebek, <laughs> but it's, it's more about the production. And again, only because we're not, you know, we're not producers. We're not trying to, you know, tell them what they're doing. But again, the effects are and can be because, you know, it's taking them time and therefore leaving questions on the board. Um, and both as people at home or and contestants, you want those questions answered, whether it's for myself and personal gain to understand or know the questions or learn from them or try to answer them myself. But being a contestant, that's money being left on the board, mm -hmm. therefore creating a lower, you know, lower pot, essentially lower money for the contestant to be able to take home. So, you know, maybe it is production and maybe they're doing it on purpose maybe they are giving out too much money and maybe they're being told you know let's not get all the all the, all the questions off of the board but again i think the ultimate goal would be to get through both boards finish the boards or there for a reason if you're making them that big then obviously they should be answered i uh, totally agreed uh not to get too far down the rabbit hole and conspiracy theories and whatnot but there is something to be said in, in that Jeopardy versus Wheel of Fortune. Jeopardy does not have any breaks throughout the year. Once they start the season in mid-September from episode one, they do not take a break uh, all the way through until the end of July when they go on summer hiatus. So there are new episodes of Jeopardy every weekday from mid-September to the end of July, whereas Wheel of Fortune, you will see, uh, you'll have one to two week breaks spread out through the year. So there are less episodes of Wheel of Fortune being aired as compared to Jeopardy. But with that said, Wheel of Fortune also gives away more money as well. So that is also, but it's also more popular. So it, a lot of it weighs into it, you know? Um, right. And again, not, 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 not to get away from Jeopardy, but again, yeah, there are differences. There's more popular. Um, however, there's also a lot more um, advertising. You know, Jeopardy, and again, I might jump into to JD's next point, is the advertising space. Mm -hmm. um, Wheel of Fortune relies on a lot of advertising based on the promotions, their giveaways, kind of like a Price is Right, you know, it's based on the resort that gives away the, the prize package or the, the, the getaway package or based on the car they're giving out. And, you know, so it's, 
there's different types of promotions they get where Jeopardy is straight cash and Jeopardy is relying solely on the commercials, which, you know, jumping into this next, um, I think, topic we want to go over of why maybe the boards aren't getting cleared is commercial breaks and why there's more now than normal and why they're cutting back and forth and possibly that having to do with it. Yeah, if you, uh, to Adrian's point there, yeah, one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm sure many of you who watch Jeopardy on a nightly basis um, and over the years have noticed, uh, working from the back end, you see for the last maybe four, five, six years that there have been sponsors sponsoring the second and third place prizes of $1,000 and $2,000. Um, it, it was originally a leave uh, back around season 29, season 30. Uh, there for a while it was Centrum, and currently right now it's Geico. And as Adrian said, there is less opportunity for advertising space on Jeopardy versus a Wheel of Fortune. So they have to figure out a way to pay the bills and pay the contestants and make sure the lights are still on. And I think we're seeing that in the one, the end credits for sure. I mean, the end credits, I feel like they don't go over 10 seconds anymore. And they're, they're not even bothering moving the contestants out to the middle of the stage for the end credits like they used to for the first 33 seasons. They're leaving them just behind the podiums. Uh, just because they, uh, as a production, I feel like they know that they're only going to have X amount of seconds on average, uh, less so than in previous seasons. So why even bother moving the contestants? And with that being said, the advertising space that they have is in the commercials. And you have to wonder if production is squeezing the amount of airtime of the show to add more commercials and more advertising space so they can make more money. And with uh, the unfortunate consequence of more boards being um, left incomplete, yeah, left unanswered, incomplete. Uh, There's so, also, also going to the breaks, you know, before it was pretty quick where it was, you know, half the board Jeopardy, commercial break, finishing, uh, returning intro to the, to the contestants and then finishing half the board or trying to, and then another commercial, and straight into, returning straight into Double Jeopardy, clearing the board, coming back, and already starting into, you know, the answer, or revealing the answer for final. And it's almost as if that gap between finishing Double Jeopardy and revealing what the final category, the topic is for Final Jeopardy, and actually getting to it is a little bit longer. It's almost like they cut back into it, they show the Jeopardy screen, they do a quick intro about who's sponsoring, you know, the Final Jeopardy, and then it's almost like, a longer break it's almost like a four or five minute break before you even get mm -hmm. to see the question revealed where again maybe that's because they're they're elongating to add more commercials in that time but um you know being a long time watcher if you haven't noticed that that that, that break is a lot longer than it normally was um and then you get into you know the final question reveal um and again before having the contestants come out after that and kind of meet alex on the stage was always great um i've referenced before where i saw someone where all three contestants go out and the person that lost you know, they're excited, you know, and, and about being on the show, but he's just, his demeanor is awful. He's just staring right at the floor and walking down to go hang, you know, to go shake um, Alex Trebek's hand, and you can tell he's just defeated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I apologize if that was you out there and you're watching uh, and you're, you're listening to us, but that's part of the value because there is such so, so less of a personal experience on that show. It's part of seeing it. It's part of understanding it, and when you're a long-time watcher, you understand that that's how the show goes, but to having some of that stuff cut out again. Is it production? Is it the fact that they don't want boards being answered? Is it commercials? You know, but but we've noticed definitely on this season that that's a big fact, as well as the pots for champions being a lot lower. 
you know, people are three day champs with barely thirty thousand yeah. dollars. Or sometimes that's what you'd go home with, you know, on as being the champ for one or two days. Um, but some of these champs that are returning are winning big pots and there's hardly any reigning champs. The pots are getting smaller and the champs that are being able, that are able to retain and stay on for a whole week. I rarely ever see someone from Monday to Wednesday still on there. It's almost a new champ every day. And the games are almost runaways. It hardly ever comes down to, to the Jeopardy, uh, the wager anymore. And the question, it's almost just, okay, you know, the champ's there and they've, they've got to not worry about it. But then the next day, it, it's a complete turnaround of the game. So there's definitely less domination in the game as well. Yeah, with the uh, with the clues being left unread also, it can affect some strategies as well. I know, now I'm not a proponent of this, but I know that there is a popular strategy out there where if you see a category... Like for us, I know both Adrian and I, we're both sports fiends. So, I mean, if there's a like a category about the Super Bowl or World Series or MVP quarterbacks or whatever it is, uh, we're going to want that category. But there is thought out there, and it does make sense, even though I may not agree with it. But if you have a category like that, you want to save it towards the end to give it the biggest impact. Because if you're... Ahead, you can give yourself that extra cushion by saving that toward, towards the, the last of the round, and you can give yourself that extra cushion at the end. Or if you're behind, it'll give you a chance to, almost a guaranteed chance to catch up. Oh, obviously, other people may know the clues as well, but you're going to give yourself the best chance at the end of the round to either cushion your lead or to catch up. And if there happens to be a daily double there, uh, if you hit one, all the better. But with the fact that we're now leaving both Jeopardy and Double Jeopardy incomplete, leaving clues on the board in both rounds, that is a strategy that can't be implemented as widely as it may have been before. Now, again, I'm not necessarily a proponent of that. Uh, uh, I'm okay with it if you leave it, you know, midway through the round that's cool like just to see where you are at that point um but i totally get the uh the strategy behind it but it does come into play now the fact that we're leaving clues on the board you may not want to wait <laughs> the whole entire time because with the other if you're not so confident in the other categories there's no guarantee you can get the board back to get to your one category that you know you like and if you wait towards the end you may not see all of them right and then at that point it becomes more detrimental to you because it's either going to greatly increase your chances of catching up or almost put you out of the game without getting it or leaving it up there and if i'm the champion if i'm sitting up there and i'm significantly ahead of you i want to leave as many big clues off the board in those yeah. last couple if alex says you got 10 seconds on the board and i'm up ahead and there's a 200 question and a 16 i'm taking the two right away oh, because yeah. i want to make sure that you're not you have no chance whether you get it wrong or i get it right or vice versa that you have no chance of catching up to me this way in Final Jeopardy, I can kind of just you know, wager what I need to and, and, and secure the win. Um, I also think that now we're seeing a lot more of that. Maybe that's why, because the pots are so low from champions. It's almost as if they're more concerned about winning the game and leaving as champion as they are to increasing their pot and getting that question right. Mm -hmm. And that might be to where production likes it, because now they have champions, people are winning, but it's at a lower amount. It concentrates mm -hmm. on just winning your game and getting to the next game. But again, once you do that, you're doing the same thing over and over again. So you're leaving significant pots, and the wagers are significantly lower. Um, where, you know, again, if I saw a category, I would like, just, I'm, I'm going big. I'm going to go big or go home. Um, everyone has their own strategy, but I think that's that's a big factor, too, is people are more concerned about winning their game and living to fight another day as opposed to cashing out or trying to win big 
on their game and win ultimately to win more money. Yeah, and I and honestly, from that point of view, it, I really think that makes a lot of sense because this is the one game show left anymore. And correct me if I'm wrong. Excuse me for having that game show podcast and not knowing this, but this is the one game show left. Oh, Family Feud, where you have returning champions. You know that you know a lot of all these other shows are one-offs. This is your one chance to play. You have your game. Go do it. So the go big or go home strategy um, might be better in that sense. But for Jeopardy, um, knowing that you have the possibility of multiple turns at this game can lead you to more conservative, a more conservative strategy and just making sure you're here for the next day. Yeah, Family Feud still does it. Um, there's a cap on it, but um, it's not as big as Jeopardy. Jeopardy can go on for a while. Jeopardy also has a cap now, I believe, as well. Uh, no, they originally they took had it off, right. they took it off. They originally had the five day cap, and then uh, early two thousands, maybe late nineties, right. they got rid of the cap, which led to Ken Jennings. Jennings. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it is one of the among strategies others. among those. Um, it is one of the strategies where it's, you know survive, I guess, in a sense, to stay alive and win a bigger pot or have a chance to redeem yourself the next show. And that, that, that I think, plays into the hands of production as well as the uh, the pots being a lot lower than normal. Um, yeah, because ultimately those strategies come down to the person themselves. As you said, you're more of a go big or go home kind of guy. I would probably prescribe. <laughs> Contrary to what you may see on TV in my game show appearances, I would probably prescribe to a more conservative approach. Uh, that's more of a do as I say, not as I do sort of thing, but <laughs> always easier said than done. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like when you're, when you're in that moment, um, you want to play. Uh, and so then the go big or go home strategy can bite you in the butt as well. So that could also be, uh, a factor in terms of like lower, uh, amount. Yeah. Lower amounts being won by our well, champions. This, uh, this, this season too, we've also seen. And again, sometimes it's because of the lower pots or the incorrect answers of everyone getting something wrong in Final Jeopardy. But Alex has put a little more uh, emphasis on the day before. <laughs> There's been a couple shows this uh, this season where he intro his intro is done, and he likes to touch on the fact that you know we have a returning champion with not so big of a pot of, right. or with uh, barely squeaking by yesterday, <laughs> or referencing the fact that everyone got the question wrong still. So he might uh, he might be holding some uh, some bitterness from. The, the day the, the the previous episode, but Alex has gotten uh, a little a little more witty, a little I don't want to say catty, but he's uh, he's got his jabs he's, he's put in there this season. He's uh, he's a little feistier in season thirty four, I think, than in seasons past. He's always had those moments from time to time. Um, I would say especially if a if no one gets a clue correct in the uh, at the top of the category, he'll. Uh, He'll give the answer and say it as though, like, how did you guys not get this? Like, which could be understandable and whatnot. And it gives a little certain flair to it that a game show like Jeopardy may not have normally. Um, But yes, his feistiness, especially coming out, being introduced and and making mention of the fact almost once a week, it seems like it feels like the last, especially the last two, three, four weeks here um, in December and January, I feel like he's talking about it more often than what we have heard from him in seasons past, how uh, it could be a difficult final, not so much money is being won, we haven't had a repeat champion. Well, there was, in early January, I there was a streak, six, seven, eight games, where we had a new champion every day as well. And so, um, yeah, it could be a, a 
Well, Adrian, you had a thought? No, yeah, I, I, I'm probably touching what Jory to say. It, it could be because of just his tenure or his understanding of it. I mean, you know, he's been doing what he's been doing for so long, you know, and he's probably got different expectations of people. Again, it is the ultimate challenge of wits, and, you know, he could probably be staring at someone, and how could the three of you not know this? You know, I, I just read this question, you know, two seasons ago. <laughs> so to him, I'm sure he's seen and read everything and understands it. Obviously, he's intellectual as well. He retains it, but... Um, I think because he's so passionate about it and he's good at what he does that he gets upset, especially when all three people either get it wrong or there's two questions where they both answer incorrectly and he's kind of just got that glare as the three seconds wind down and no one answers it. Um, he loves to kind of give that quick, uh, well, you know, maybe he doesn't say obviously what that look is and with that head nod, he kind of slides and says, well, it was, you know, <laughs> and, and gives the answer. But uh, Alex uh, is a little more animated this, this season. Um, than normal. And speaking of Alex, uh, we would like to wish him a very speedy recovery as he recovers from surgery. Uh, back in December, he experienced a fall at his house, um, which led to him having uh, either blood clots or bleeding on the brain. I, f I forget which one. Blood clots, and he did have a surgery on his brain as well. Yes, um, and this came to light mostly because it got out that the college championship uh, the annual tournament they hold for college students uh, was supposed to tape, uh, I believe, last week, and it was postponed until March. And people were wondering what was going on. You know, you know, fear the worst, hope for the best. And I think we got somewhere in the middle with this in terms of Alex. Yes, he had a fall. He had surgery. Uh, he did, as a, uh, Adrian mentioned to me, he did send out a YouTube video. Um, yeah, it's not it's not an actual, it's not a statement or you know a letter from he actually came on YouTube himself you know speaking um, and in quotes says the prognosis is excellent and I expect to be back in the studio taping more Jeopardy games very soon you know so that was him um, and he wanted to let people know that he was doing okay and again this wasn't you know to bash Alex or not we, we love him he's part of the he's part of the excitement that you know very little much excitement that the show brings he he adds it on there with his uh, I'll call it sassiness this year. Um, but he's doing he's doing better. Um, again, that's that's a tough thing to kind of deal with and to have brain surgery. You know, at seventy seven years old, um, he's he's doing better. Um, they expect him to be back. I don't know how soon you can say soon is, but he should be back in production uh, relatively soon. But you know that goes into maybe our next point is the hosts and the hosts of the show. You know, we've talked about this personally again, but you start thinking, wow, what is Jeopardy without? Um, Alex Trebek, he's been doing this. He's the longest tenured of all the game shows now that uh, Bob Barker's off of Price is Right. But he's my entire living life, he's been the host of, uh, of Jeopardy. Um, so in my back of my head, you start thinking, wow, like who replaces him or who does, do they replace him or can they replace him? And again, not to say that Alex Trebek is getting replaced or that we want him replaced. But again, when this, when we first, when I first heard about this, you know, that's one of my automatic reactions. Is, yeah. oh, man, I hope, number one, I hope he's okay. I hope everything's well. And, you know, for selfish reasons, is who goes on to keep the show going. Because, of course, being an avid watcher and fanatic, uh, I want the show to continue. And I'm sure he would, too. Again, not saying anything's happening on the show. People say, oh, my God. You know, it turns out the time to have replacing him. Um, but that goes to our head. And, again, you raise a talking point. You know, who do they get to replace him? Is it the same type of personality? Do they go totally different? Um, and every game shows how to go through that, mostly. Besides Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, which are the big ones, but... Again, the conversation starts, you know, to, to where do we look or how do we do it or what do we get? Yeah, as Adrian said, we, we hope that we still have Alex for many years to come. But the fact of the matter is he is 77 years old. And when we have 
things like this happen. I mean, this isn't the first time he's injured himself either um, at his home. And we've seen him before with uh, wrist braces. He had to, he hurt his leg a while back. He had to, instead of stand at his podium, he's been sitting at his podium for a few seasons now. Um, the fact of the matter is he's been there for over 30 years and as sprightly and as sassy as he may be, he's still 77 years old. And so, as Adrian said, perhaps selfishly, you know, our minds do go that route. Uh, we, you know, who's going to take the mantle? Because in reality, Alex Trebek also was not the first host of Jeopardy as well. When it debuted, you know, the Alex Trebek version has been on for 34 seasons. However, it did debut back in the 60s with Art Fleming. Um, ran for a handful of years, uh, taken off the air, and then it came, It had a revival in the mid-80s along with Wheel of Fortune. And that's the version that, those are the versions of the shows that we've known ever since. And so, you know, to think of Jeopardy, you think of Alex Trebek. And you think of Wheel of Fortune, you think Pat Sajak. And for the longest time, even Bob Barker. I know Bob Barker is synonymous with The Price is Right. Even he wasn't the first host of The Price is Right. Bill Cullen was. Um but when you have someone host or be a part of a program for so long, like how, how do you replace a living legend or sometimes not a living legend? You know, again, hopefully Alex stays with us for quite a long time here. But again, the, the question comes up because we've had game show host switches, you know, the price is right. We've had, again, back in the day, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, you have uh, family Feud and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in the last decade switch hosts uh, a number of times as well. And yeah, so. probably the most prominent is your Family Feud. You know, Family Feud is a show where it's about the family, but the host, you know, it's a big deal. The host has their own personality. You know, again, we don't want to say, you know, replacing Alex Trebek, but what do you look for if that ever happens? Um, family Feud's done a good job of having the host put their own spin on it. You know, when it came out and it started with Richard Dawson, you know, he was... Uh, he was very charismatic, and you know, again, back in back in that day, little things were a little more okay. Um, you know, today you can have you know Steve Harvey mouth kissing every contestant four or five times as they came up to, to play, but that's what Richard Dawson did. And back there, it was okay because a little more innocent, you know, maybe. But he did that, you know. And then we went into you know the late great Ray Combs, who put his own spin on it. He was the energetic guy. He was the, the you know the the kind of your cheerleader who would root for you and pump you up and put a positive spin on thing and. You know, down to Louie Anderson, who kind of put his own comedic spin. First time they put a comedian on TV, you know, to kind of do the game show thing. Um, so every game show, I guess, had their little experiments. Um, Richard Carn did it for, uh, I believe, two or three seasons or four seasons. Um, you know, Richard Carn, everyone knows, is a home improvements um, former actor. Um, but um, John O'Hurley did it for a couple seasons, too. John O'Hurley was great, but his was a little more... Still a comedian, but a little more serious, I guess. Um, he just has the, the, the aura about it of being a little more... I, I don't know if highbrow is necessarily the right right term, but... You, they, he was a little regal. He was very... Yeah. You know, he was charismatic in his own way, where he was very, you know, funny, but quick jabs. He wasn't really, like, Mr. Energy. He was a little more serious, but, you know, still, still a good host. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then leading into Steve Harvey, who's been at the helm since 2010. Um, Steve Harvey, at this rate, is almost to the point where he's become synonymous with Family Feud at this point. I mean, he's we're in 2018, so he's been there eight, nine seasons at this point. And considering the 
run in the history of Family Feud. He's also one of the longest tenured now behind Dawson, and he might. I'm not sure about Ray Combs, but um, I, I know he's been there obviously longer than Louis Anderson and Richard Karn and uh, John Hurley. So yeah, they're both right about that seven or eight year marker, Combs and. Um... Harvey and Harvey, but yeah, and then again, he put his spin on it. Harvey is yes. the jokester, and the, you know, he makes his com- he's not shy to make his comments on what he believes your answers are. You know, yeah. or some of them might be a little more candid. Wait for you know, Harvey lets you know whether you made a good answer, quote unquote, which you're supposed to say when you know your family gives an answer. Um, but Steve Harvey definitely lets you know it, you know. But he's the, he's the example of you know creating a different spin and creating a different type of environment um, as each show goes along. Um, I think going to Who Wants to Be a Billionaire, they kind of tried the same thing until they found their niche. Um, and you can speak a little more from being on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, where they changed that. Not only did they change hosts, but they also changed the gameplay when some of the hosts were on there too. So where, you know, there was different strategy involved, there was a different dynamic to it as the different hosts came on, starting with Regis Film and, you know, airing on primetime. Right, yeah. Uh, ABC pretty much ran Who Wants to Be a Millionaire into the ground by showing it almost every night for four straight years with Regis Philbin. And I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, you're going to, you know, if they're bringing in the ratings, I mean, that that's what uh, these networks are all about. Um, however, that's why it led to such a short run on primetime. But they had the wherewithal to send it in the syndication where they found Meredith Vieira. And I feel like uh, for Millionaire, they got lucky in that term um, finding Meredith Vieira and having someone... Um, I would I don't, I mean, uh, they're similar, but I, I feel like there's a difference between charismatic and being charming. Uh, Meredith Vieira had like this charm, like she was, not to like, uh, talk about a woman's age, but she was old enough to have a motherly feel, but young enough to still, you know, give one-liners or even slyly flirt, you know, a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, she was... Right, she was very charming. Like you said, you know, Regis, again, was that upbeat and very charismatic and energetic. And, um, again, that that daytime slot with Meredith was great. It was a good fit. Again, she was kind of like that soothing type of very charismatic, very beautiful, but respected um, person sitting across from you. and, it, and and it's still, you know, with the production, the, the music and the lights, and I referenced before how, you know, they were the first ones to do that, to make the show so dramatic and the lights dimming and the music and being the center stage. Um, with the host change, they had to kind of change some of that, not being in prime time, being on daytime TV. It was more of a little more laid back environment. They, you know, they even changed the games where at one point you were standing and sometimes you were sitting. So they've changed some of that as well as the hosts have changed for that show. Yeah, Meredith had a, a nice 10-11 year run there, and she is still the longest tenured host in the history of that show uh, in doing so. But since she left the show in 2013, we've had Cedric the Entertainer, Terry Crews, and who have each lasted for one season. And now we have Chris Harrison, who's currently on his third. So they may have found uh, the next, you know, uh, the next face behind who wants to be a millionaire. Um, that's not to say that Cedric or Terry. Uh, didn't do well because I personally I thought Terry Crews did very well. I, I enjoyed him as the host and I and I know that uh, we know someone who was on Millionaire during the season which Terry Crews uh, was the host. Yeah, shout out to Justin uh, Just Trivia. Uh, yeah, he had not a bad word to say and I haven't found a really a bad word uh, on the internet or anywhere else about Terry Crews as being the host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. But uh, as we said, like 
but that's almost more the norm as we've seen with Family Feud and Millionaire. There, there can sometimes be a time gap in which you run through successive hosts in a short amount of in a short amount of time, looking to find uh, the new faces. I said because now Steve Harvey, after three or four different hosts in the 2000s, Steve Harvey has been there since 2010 now for eight nine years, eight nine seasons. Uh, and as I said, we have Chris Harrison now on his third season of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And sometimes it takes time, and sometimes that could be time that you're, as a fan, as we circle back to Jeopardy and possibly Wheel of Fortune, but certainly Jeopardy, um, you know, when you think about, oh no, like what's going to happen when this person retires or what have you, when this person leaves the show, like will the show survive? And it ultimately comes down... It, I mean, for the show, for Jeopardy, because it's a little less energy and a little less personality-driven, almost, whether they wanted this or not, there's almost an air of sophistication, slightly kind of like how we talked about John O'Hurley and his version of Family Feud. Um, not to say that Jeopardy is highbrow by any means, but it is more of a straight intellectual show, very fast-paced. There is really no time for personality and high energy to be shown that it it's more it's more about the question it's more about the question and answers it's more about the intellectual challenge you know the combating of the contestants it's less about personality not to take away from anything alex does on my show but um, it's a little different with what jd's trying to say and we've seen it you know obviously the game goes on you know being from la we've seen you know how it happens in sports with vin scully um, and Chick Hearn leaving you know, mm -hmm. iconic voices that, again, we've heard all of our lives growing up. Right. Um, but ultimately, you got to find the right fit. You know, when the Lakers, you know, when Chick Hearn left, the Lakers went through a couple different broadcasters, you know, and, and Stu Lance has still been there. But you got to find that right fit, you know, and going back to to uh, Millionaire, trying to find that fit with Chris Harrison, I think they found he does a great job. Um, Cedric was okay. I think, again, they tried that first comedic spin. Um, and then Terry Crews came out, you know, and again, for nothing but good things. When I first thought of Terry Crews, I thought, oh, my God, they're, they're trying to intimidate guests. Because, again, you know, the host is supposed to make you feel comfortable, relax you. Um, and I thought, you know, they're going to have Terry Crews standing out there with no shirt, you know, flexing his pectorals. Um, and either, you know, intimidating the heck out of you or, you know, having you lost in his pectoral dance um, and distracting you from the questions. But with Chris Harrison, you know, and JD was the contestant. As Chris Harrison was the host, and I was fortunate enough to be one of his invited guests um, to watch, you know, the, the production of it. Um, and he did a great job as a host. He was interactive. Um, but, you know, as a contestant, you know, J.D. can probably give you a little more insight on how he was. Yeah, uh, it, it's funny. A lot of people, as, con as a contestant, I mean, one of the first questions... Uh, that you get is like, how are the hosts, you know, is, is Alex Trebek the way he, he seems to be on TV and is Chris Harrison that cool or, or whatever or what have you. And I can't give you much more insight because as contestants, we don't see the host outside of the airtime of the show. Now with Millionaire, because it's one-on-one, -on -one, we had a little chit-chat in between scenes during the commercial breaks. But for Jeopardy, Alex goes to and talks with the audience uh, for each commercial break, or he'll talk with the judges and the producers and whatnot if they need to uh, redo some audio and whatnot. But um, as for a contestant, what you see on TV is our entire relationship with that host. 
and so as Adrian pointed out, he he was in the audience, and I and I thank him for that and for supporting me and everything. Uh, and God bless him. He was there for an entire tape day. They were there for a good eight, nine hours waiting for me to finally get my chance to uh, take my turn. Yeah, well, while <laughs> JD was being treated like a celebrity in the green room. Um, Eating we, our Jersey Mike's. Yes. A couple of us were uh, out in the audience, you know, the in the stadium for almost, you know, eight to nine hours with one break in between. <laughs> uh, and, you know. Thank you, JD, for being the last of the five shows that we saw recorded. So we waited till the very yeah, end. Yeah, you but, were there for me, man. Thanks. Uh, of course. But um, I never saw any of that money, by the way. Um, we were there. You know, there wasn't and, much and, of it anyway. <laughs> and Chris interact great. He was out there. He was making jokes in between takes. Again, they have some audio retakes to do, but he was very interactive. So, yeah, we definitely got to see a lot more of him. And he was asking people because it's he's with the same audience all day. And I think it's a detriment to them and finding the right fit is having someone who interacts with the audience because you've got to be lively, you've got to be involved. And to sit there for an eight or nine hour span, he did a great job. He, he We definitely had a lot more interaction and involvement with him than, you know, to JD's point, the contestants did where it's that short time you're on air with him and that's it. Um, and I think, you know, Chris Harrison didn't have to do that in other, show, other shows. You know, that's the productor's job. And there's a hype man that's also there. But to be as interactive with the crowd as he did, it, it helps you. And it keeps you a fan of the show, I think. And that's the hard part about finding some of these hosts where they're replacing is, you know, getting the right fit and making sure that you attract a fan base um, and it stays loyal. Yeah, and to that point, uh, let's get into, I wouldn't say controversial, but at the time when Bob Barker was retiring, uh, those were some mighty big shoes to fill. And Drew Carey was not the most popular choice at the time. Uh, he has certainly grown into that, and I've personally, I've liked him the entire time. Like, I've been a fan of Drew Carey. Like, I, I like Whose Line Is It Anyway. I watched his sitcom back in the day. Um, so I didn't really have many qualms about it, and I like the fact that, you know, Bob Barker was your, your grandfatherly type, and I was a fan, of course, but um, I'm, I'm one of the guys, I'm a person that's not afraid of change, and given the fact that I like Drew Carey, especially from shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway. Um, he also did host a primetime game show before The Price is Right. He hosted The Power of Ten. Uh, I don't know if any of you watched that. It lasted, I think, maybe uh, for its initial six-episode run, I think. Uh, I'm not sure if it lasted much longer than that, But which was also on CBS. So I think that's where CBS felt comfortable. They had a person already who had hosted a primetime game show. Um, and so while The Price is Right is very popular it is still a daytime commodity it comes on at 10 a.m um so the the stakes are definitely not as high in terms of ratings per se and also in terms of the winnings because the power of 10 the the top prize was 10 million dollars not that anybody ever won that but uh cbs had some familiarity and i think they were comfortable enough with that and i've been okay with it and over time this is now drew carey's 10th season at the helm of the Price is Right, uh, he's found his he found his footing pretty quickly. I thought, but um, he has definitely found his following as well. I think a lot of people have warmed up to him as much as people miss Bob Barker. There are still you know some Bob Barker truthers out there that think the show should have you know retired with him. But Drew's done a, a fantastic job, and that just goes to show the luck behind. Uh, finding a host for these game shows, you know, you when you hire someone, you go in thinking, 
or hoping that this person is the next Bob Barker or the the next Alex Trebek or the next uh, Regis Philbin or Meredith Vieira or whatnot. Sometimes it works out, like with finding Meredith Vieira, with finding Drew Carey. And sometimes it takes a while, like with Family Feud. You go through Louie Anderson and Richard Karn and John O'Hurley before you find Steve Harvey, who's been able to make it last. Yeah, and again, it's to the show and to what, you know, if they want to change aspects of the show or not. But, you know, Bob Barker, I guess, made it becoming a celebrity. You know, him starting off on uh, the Truth of Consequences and then leading up to 1972's Price is Right. He had done quite a bit before, but I think the fandom started with him. You know, with him at the helm of Price is Right started people creating shirts and personalizing it for Bob. And, you know, I just want to meet Bob. And um, when he decided, or when they decided that it was his time, it was hard. I'm sure they were struggling and trying to find the right decision. And Drew Carey coming in, I remember, was controversial. It was the first time someone that big or long tenured was going to replace someone. And Drew Carey, again, there were some people, I liked him. You know, I was always been a fan. Again, I'd watched him and, um, you know, been a fan of him and Wayne Brady and some of the stuff they had done. Um, but he was a popular decision. A lot of people were upset. Um, but that goes to the fact that we talked to earlier. The game show must go on. It has you thinking who replaces, who goes on. But, you know, it's a very successful show. And again, congrats to Drew for being there for 10 years. Um, and we actually were part of a group that went on The Price is Right. Well, as, as, as guests in the audience, we've done it a couple times. Uh, I think um, this is my, that was my fourth time being in the audience. Um, but Drew was great, and he's a great fit. And, you know, as we were there, he's very interactive. In between cuts and scenes, all he's doing is talking to the audience. Um, and I think half that battle, again, is finding someone who enjoys what they do. And Drew does. Drew loves it. He's up there, and he's cracking jokes, and he's laughing harder at his own jokes than everybody else. And the guy has, you know, looks like he's having a ball. Um, but you've got to enjoy. You've got to enjoy what you're doing, as as with anything. But you know, I think it was a great fit. You know, we had the opportunity of being able to be there, and he dressed me personally. He talked to me about our group and what I do, and where I was there from. And you know, obviously, I didn't win anything. I didn't get on a contestant's row, but I felt relieved. I felt like, hey, at least you know he talked to us this time. That was cool. He acknowledged us, and that keeps you motivated. That keeps you kind of captive and understanding. You know that hey, this is it's rewarding to just be there, be part of it, and especially with someone like Drew Carey, who's done a fantastic job. Yeah, and I think the uh, two things that I especially agree with. One, you have to, like you said, you have to enjoy what you're doing. Like for some people, I'm sure that they've treated game shows as just another gig, you know, and, and I feel like that's where you fail. Like now sometimes it doesn't always work out. Like I've heard you hear all the great things about Terry Crews and he only lasted one season. Sometimes it happens. Um, but you, you fail to hear about a host that lasts that long who doesn't enjoy it and doesn't feel for the contestants when they win and when they lose and the fact that they care about that that's what makes them a successful host and then two to your point how he and that goes to your second point in drew addressing you the last time that i had the privilege of going to the price is right taping with you i was with you when he addressed you in the audience he pointed you out and said hey adrian what's going on we had a group of 12 of us most of it was adrian's family there was a, a few family friends with us and you know, uh, Adrian, like, what's going on here? I see all these people wearing the same shirt. And again, going back to the point, you know, we, you, you got to stand out. And we're all wearing these Price is Right shirts that Adrian made, designed and made for us. Yeah, shout out to the Lowey family. And, you know, uh, Adrian just said, you know what? We have, you know, this is my family. We want, we've been wanting to do this. Um, 
and it, it gives you that kind of repartee between yourself and the host, and it keeps you focused because that's well, that's what the show wants, especially a show like The Price is Right, which has so much audience interaction. You need to have someone who can keep the attention of, of these people because the taping, it's an hour show, but I think on average the tapings have gone about an hour and a half. Yeah, it's about an hour and a half, and it's, it's a process. We were there for almost four hours. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, the group stage, and we can go through really quick on how it is when you line up, you get your tickets, you put in numerical order, they do kind of bit by bit 20-person group interviews, you show your energy and your intros to a producer, you go into another holding area, then you put in, you know, order where you're going to sit. So it's a long uh, it's a long process to get into the actual, uh, before you're even taping into the, into the auditorium. And then, again, they, they expect and they want high energy, and that's how they select you. And it's constant clapping and yelling and shouting, and they want you to be interactive, and they want you to, to be bidding and talking to people, and, hey, this is my bid. And, again, they, they also push that's how they select you throughout the show. People with high energy and involvement in the show is how you're going to get on. So they want someone like that. Someone's got to keep keep you captive. And, again, there are hype men, and there are people that come in and talk to you, too. And there's a producer who tells you when to applaud and when to kind of quiet down. But... The fact that he does that, and he makes it personal, he talks to you, and he makes references. If he hears that someone was a Starbucks person before, he'll go right back to you and say, hey, did you know this person? And he makes jokes about it, and he's <laughs> kind of interactive. So, that, again, it just shows how it really fits and how it kind of keeps you as a captive. I loved it. You know, it was our... Yeah, we had the great Starbucks versus coffee bean uh, on <laughs> right. the Civil War in the audience last right. time we went. And it was great. He created that. Um, and that was my fourth time going. And again, it was a long process, three or four hours to drive for us. So the whole day probably took us like six to six and a half hours yeah. of traffic and everything to get in and out of there. But the fact that he did that almost made me enjoy it more. And I was like, wow. You know, you, you go a couple of times, like, oh, I'm ready to not do this. I haven't been selected. But the fact that that happened, he kept you captive and, you know, spoke with you. And it was cool. He didn't have to do that, but he didn't. And I think that makes it a good fit. Yeah. And I mean, that's, and that's a big reason why you've been four times and I've been twice with you, you know, um, if he if he's not like that, I mean, yeah, you're still going because you want to play the prices right. But ha I mean, we've gone four times in like the last two. You've gone four times in about the last two years now. You know, like ha if if it wasn't for Drew Carey or someone or just the production itself, like keeping you engaged the entire time, uh, like would you go back four times over two years? Oh no, I definitely would stop probably after the second time. I didn't get selected, but yeah, it, again, it adds value to it. It makes you want to keep going more. So it's it's. It definitely added value to the show and being there, being in person. I if, for those of you who haven't, going to a live taping itself, it's fantastic. I don't want to make it seem like it's a boring process. Once you're in there, it's high energy and you're involved. You know, I've said before, I walked out with, you know, a sore throat and in a good way when your voice is hoarse and you, you know, you're cheering all day and your hands are kind of like, wow, I've been clapping for three hours, you know. But it, it, it's a great experience to be in there and understand it and see it and be in the state. So if you get a chance, you definitely should try it. Yeah, I know that we're fortunate enough to live in Southern California and can go to multiple tapings over a, a certain stretch of time. And I know for me, I wouldn't say the first time I went was tedious. It's just the fact that you don't know the process. And as Adrian pointed out, you know, the whole thing from the time you get there to the time the end of the taping, you're at the studio for maybe about four hours or so. Um, and when, you, when you're when you living it through the first time and you don't know these things, it can seem like a long time. But the second time I did go with Adrian, I feel like the process went super quick just because I, I've lived it through once and I know what's expected of me. And, and I think that's true for any anything in, in life. But um, if you are fortunate enough, as Adrian said, to come out here or live out here and be able to go once, you should do it. Because, uh, I mean, there's no risk to it. I mean, it's just it, you sign up for a free ticket and you go down. 
if you have priority, you're guaranteed a spot. If you're on standby, then hopefully people don't show up and you're able to go in. Um, and if you're able to come in multiple times, that's even better. Um, yeah, they do offer for people who are coming from uh, um, out of state or, or trying to come down for the experience. You know, we've been asked as we come out, do you guys want to stay for another recording? So they normally do three. They, they tape three of these shows in a day. Um, so it's a process, but if you want to come up, they'll make it worth it for you. And you know, if you show up to the early one, there is a more likely chance that you'll be able to jump in those other couple of shows as well. So uh, speaking of the prices, right? <laughs> Preach, Adrian. Uh, we're going to go into uh, something real quick. You know, and there's there's certain strategies that are involved with games. It's not all about wit and about understanding and knowing it. You know, people that go on prices right and win aren't because you know they're lazy boy salesmen. They just happen to get lucky, but. Um, there, there's there's strategy involved in some of these things. Yeah, and that could be said for any and all of these game shows uh, that we like to watch. And over time, uh, we would like to do deep dives into all of these shows and the different strategies uh, that you can implement. Because I feel like, I know for me personally, I would want to have a strategy going in, even if it's at, even if it is as simple as the time I was on Jeopardy, and this was totally worst case scenario for me, I knew going in from all the years I've tried out and wanted to be on the show, I know that if you are in the negative, if you have negative money at the end of Double Jeopardy, they will not let you stay on stage and play Final Jeopardy. Your podium will be empty. And for me, that would be the most worst case scenario I could ever imagine or live through. Now, that's not to say there's any shame in that because there have been plenty of contestants that have had it. I'm just saying for myself, I know that even if I had $1, even if I had to sit there for a whole round with $1, I would not risk losing that to get into the negative. And so what happened for me was I was uh, losing pretty badly <laughs> by the time we got to the end of Double Jeopardy. I had $3,200. Uh, at the time, the returning champ had close to 20, so it was a foregone conclusion at that point uh, that I was not going to win. I did hit a daily double, and I bet 3000 out of my 3200 because I know for me personally, at that point in time, knowing that I had no shot to win, or next to no shot, I should say, um, that the most important thing for me at that point was to make sure I stayed on stage for the full 30 minutes. And I knew that going in, like I wasn't deterred by the big gap just to say, oh, let's make it a true daily double or anything like that. So I bet 3000. Now I did get it correctly, albeit luckily because I, I guesstimated <laughs> very wisely the answer, thankfully. Yeah, we could, we could tell by the high pitch at the very last. <laughs> or not. Or we could just talk about the fact that I got I got the daily double right. And, but the fact is, if I had gotten it wrong, I still would have had $200 with a handful of clues on the board. And I resigned myself to the fact that if I had gotten it wrong and had only $200, I would have sat my buzzer down and let the last handful of clues happen. So I could have made it to Final Jeopardy, guaranteed, regardless of whether or not I 100% knew the answers to the other questions. And I think that's what you need to do in shows, especially like The Price is Right, which is very high energy, very personality driven. As Adrian said, like you're going to go home with sore hands, tired arms, tired feet, a hoarse throat, because they want the yelling, they want, they want high energy. And with high energy comes a lot of physical exertion and with a lot of physical exertion comes mental fatigue 
And if you don't have those preconceived strategies going in to, to automatically fall back on, if that's your, you need a baseline like that, you're going to be you're going to be like look like a fish out of water and you're going to be so confused and you're not going to know where you are that it could be it could end up being very overwhelming for some people and that's even and even for people that do have strategies sometimes that it could be overwhelming but you add all of this physical and mental fatigue to it and it could be it could be a bit much right yeah, i mean it's bright lights it's being up there and we've seen contestants jump up and and i get it you know no disrespect to any contestant that's been up there and on stage but um just this past week, you know, someone went up and the question was, hi, and she was herself, cool, where are you from? She had no idea. She was already looking in the audience for help. And I guess she finally said it after like a couple of seconds, but that's how you blank out instead. You don't know where yeah. you're from or what's happening. So a lot of that adds to the fact, you know, so you got to go in with some type of strategy or, you know, preconceived notion. If this happens, this is what I'm doing, especially if you've seen the show or understand the show. Um, you know, to JD's point, you know, being able to just play Final Jeopardy, um, I guess I'm the same. If I was able to go up there and be on Final Jeopardy at the end, I would just want a chance to be able to write, you know, sorry, Mom, on my on the podium, you know, with my pen at the end when I when I give the answer because I have no idea what it's going to be. But at least I was up there and uh, I got to say that. So, um, you know, going back to, to Price is Right, it's it, the process is not, and there's a lot more strategy involved than people think with that show particularly. It's more about, you know, we'll go over just quickly the bidding process and you're bidding not for this item that's up for bids, but against other contestants. Mm -hmm. um, the process, for some of you don't know, is, you know, the price is right. You're in an auditorium, four or 500 people, and they have pre-selected a few to come down, the first four people who bid in what they call contestants row. And an item is up for bid. And based on how you were called or selected down a contestants row, one through four, is the order in which you will be bidding. Now, let's say the item up for bid is a Lazy Boy reclinable leather chair. Well, unless you are a salesman of Lazy Boy reclinable chairs, or that's always been your lifelong dream to have one, it's very rare that you're going to know exactly how much that price costs. So you're going to give a beginning bid. And let's say that beginning bid is $800. Okay, now the second person bids. Now, the premise of this is to be able to get the closest to the actual retail sale price without going over. Once you're over, no matter what your bid or how close you are, you are automatically disqualified from winning that bid. So as the second, third, and fourth person bidding, that's your goal, is to try and get to the closest price, but not go over. To give yourself the biggest um, opportunity or advantage to, to, to have your bid be the winning bid. And the way this works most of the time is one of my favorite things to watch. And if you're someone who screams at the, the TV at like sporting events or your children, or your dog, and even worse when it comes to the people on Bitter's Row and how they bid and how the process this goes. People might think that I'm going insane, you know, at my house when I'm screaming at 10.30 in the morning because people are bidding on something that they probably think they have a good idea on, but in real reality have no idea how much something costs. Right. To, to Adrian's point, a lot of times we, or I would say a contestant in Contestant's Row, once you're under the bright lights and on the big stage and you see the price, like your first thought is to come up with what do you think the price of uh, this prize is? And a lot sometimes that's not the best strategy to go. Like if you're the first person to bid on a certain prize, then yes, you're going to have to do your best to try and get a number that's close enough to the actual retail price. However, if you're the second or third, and especially if you are the last person to give their uh, guess in terms of what they think it costs, 
you definitely need to react more to the prices that have already been set as opposed to the actual retail price of the prize itself. Yeah, and that's where the strategy comes in. You know, being that second, third, or fourth bidder, you are now bidding against that bid. And I don't want to totally disregard what the price of the actual item costs, but that's how you're going to place your bet. So if that beginning bid is $800 and you are the second person bidding, you probably shouldn't say $798 because that's what you saw it on for retail price. Because now you're only giving yourself a $2 gap to be able to base that, that, that price to land in, in your... Yeah, and, and win and be able to go up on stage. Correct. And third and fourth coincide with that. What my biggest pet peeve is seeing people where the bets are $800. The second bet, the person believes, you know what, I've, I think that costs a lot more. I have an idea. I'm going to say $1,000. So now they've given themselves anything from $1,000 to infinity to win this Lazy Boy chair. The third person comes in and says, you know what, I don't think it's worth all the way to $1,000. But I know it's more than $800. And they bid $900. So now what they've done is they've eliminated everything between eight and 900 And I'm not saying you don't want to you know, give yourself that gap in between. But you want to maximize your opportunity for winning. So your bid needs to be a lot closer to the lower number and as far away from the higher number as possible. And as the fourth person bidding, your bid should definitely not be anywhere in between those numbers unless you're giving yourself a significant numbers of chance. That's the strategy involved in that. You're bidding against and with the other people not based on the price that you really think that this thing costs. And I don't know the exact percentiles, but I'll say most and almost all the time, that's the person who wins that price. Yeah. People love it, uh, especially the audience, the in-studio audience, love it when a contestant bids $1. Now, it's great. Now, it, now that came about as a strategy to begin with uh, because a lot of times you'll have the 800, 900, 1,000, but... If it's less than 800, you're gonna want to win, and the guaranteed bet there is one dollar. You're giving yourself, you're maximizing your chance to win because now you have one to 7.99. If it's anywhere in that range, you will win. The problem is people love that, but don't think about betting one dollar more than someone else, or at least they don't think about it as much. Uh, it we've seen it plenty of times for it to be addressed where. You have the 800, 900, 1,000 bids, let's say, and then the fourth person should, there's really only two bets, $1 or 1,001. You know, if it's somewhere in that 800 to 1,000 gap, you know what, you're just going to have to write it off and say congrats to whoever won it. But to give yourself the maximum chance to win, you're going to have to do a, really 1,001 because now you have 1,001 to infinity to win. And as the last person to bid, your bid should always be one dollar more than someone else's and i cannot fathom how many times we see as adrian pointed out you'll have 800 900 1000 and then the fourth person will say 825 or even or even 650 not say a dollar just in case you know the, the price was 649 if you say 650 now you all overbid and now you all have to bid again and, and, and that's just, again, that maybe we're a little too cerebral in terms of these games, especially the high-energy, high-personality games, but that's what's going to actually help you win. Uh, your odds increase dramatically if you actually just think about it. Now, I know the first time I went with Adrian, we went with a big group of friends, a lot of whom don't watch the prices right on the regular. Even I'll admit, I mean, sometimes I'll go 
sometimes weeks or whatnot, uh, without watching it just because there's only so many things to do. I mean, or so many things to watch in so little time between work and social life and everything else. Now with this podcast, I might be, you know, budgeting my time a little more with a little more prices right and whatnot, but I still had a better understanding than some people who watched it as a kid when they were sick home from school. And, but when we all decided to go to the prices, right, Adrian, you know that a lot of them, if not everyone, uh, binge watched two, three weeks worth of prices, right, before we went to the show. Yeah, so timing was good. So I, I think some people were on spring break, um, and some of our teachers so from, from their from their jobs, but some of them recorded them on DVR and we're watching them in the evening just to make sure that we're, we understood the premise. And, you know, we had a group chat text going back and forth and understanding the games and how they've been. But, I mean, in, realist, in reality, that's what you want. You want to be able to have an advantage. And it's not about just, again, the show isn't made for, like, salespeople of, you know, king, king mattresses um, or, you know, <laughs> di- uh, day bed sets. It's about strategy. And the, the emphasis that I put on Bitters Row is because once you get out of Bitters Row, you've essentially won. You win the item that you bid on. Now you automatically have to play a game show where you can win anything from a brand new car to $20,000. Um and then you automatically, even if you lose that half, you have to spin the wheel, which is a big game based on chance where you can win, God, we saw, what, $75,000 given away to three contestants, you know, a couple weeks ago. Right. And then you still, if you win that, you have a chance to win the big prize, which is the Showcase Showdown. So Bitter's Row is huge, and it's important. And again, these are strategies that are going to help you win. Going back, you know, to that $1 thing, no one thought... You know, the, the first time someone said $1, it wasn't because he thought that this Lazy Boy chair cost $1. It was because he knew everybody else had significantly overbid or that he had the most numerical chance to bid that $1 because I gave him the marginal gap. Now, again, going back to the 800 900 1000 thing, if you really think, you know what, that's between eight and $900 and you're that confident, then your bid should be 801 because mm-hmm. it gives you between one and nine, 801 and 899 to give you that gap and to have your maximized chance to win. Um I'm sorry, I'm not trying to yell at you guys. I apologize. Um, but this <laughs> said we were some, passionate. Yeah, this is something that really bothers me, seeing it. Um, and people blow their chances on this. Again, yes, there are some times where someone says 11.46, and they hit around the money, and you're like, what? Well, they could have probably said anything, and if they're going to win, they're going to win. But this gives you the most opportunity and the biggest chance to get on this is understanding that that bidder's row, you're bidding against other people. And most people don't understand this and don't have that basic... Um, set of, okay, this is my strategy, and if I get on this, how we're going to go. Uh, again, it could be, again, the uh, being there for three hours. It could be never seeing it. It could be fatigue. It could be just caught in the bright lights and the energy. But if you go in there with this mindset, you, you have better odds of everybody else of winning. Yeah, and we mean not to take away the fun out of out of the experience and whatnot. But, uh, the, again, if you go into it using that as your baseline, as I mentioned, um you'll be able to enjoy the experience and not have to think about, okay, what's my strategy? What's my strategy? If it's already ingrained, if you have been watching the show for a certain amount of time and know, like, this is what I want to do. And now, Adrian and I can sit here for hours on end discussing this, uh, but we won't. We're, we'll shut it down for right now. Uh, I would really love to do a deep dive on all of these game shows and all of our strategies and whatnot. And we would love to hear from you guys about what you guys would do if you were in that position, if you were on the show, or if you have been on a game show, like what, how did you do? What were your strategies going in? How did you prepare? Things of that sort. Um, remember to hit us up on Twitter at this week game shows. Uh, thank you Twitter for giving us a limit on our handle. So it is at 
this T H I S W K Game Shows. So I'd abbreviate that a little bit. That's Twitter at this W K Game Shows. Um, or you can hit us up with the hashtag Twigs uh, T W I G S, which if you haven't noticed stands for This Week in Game Shows. Lovely how that worked out. And moving forward, uh, as we come to you hopefully weekly, we will hopefully have two different episodes for you each week. One concerning more traditional game shows, uh, your Jeopardies, your Wheel of Fortunes. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, uh, Child Support, which is actually a game show and not something uh, a deadbeat dad is trying to avoid. <laughs> and then we will have the reality side of things where I know Adrian and I, we watch shows like The Amazing Race and MTV's The Challenge. Uh, yeah, everything from The Bachelor, Dancing with the Stars, um, maybe even touch up a little bit on America's Got Talent, American Idol's coming back. Um, Survivor, um, uh, Big Brother. Right, so we'll get on all of those two as well. And again, let us know what you think, let us know what you want, tweet at us. Um, hashtag twigs let us know what you want to talk about feedback information we'll definitely give you guys a shout out and uh, maybe have some people talk with us and discuss some topics you want to hear about excellent uh for adrian perez i am jd lape uh thank you for listening and we will see you next week bye guys